Welcome everybody to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, tonight is an event that is part of the Forum's dialogue series in which we invite two thinkers to come to us and join us in discussing an important issue, an important idea, a problem, a big question, as it were. And tonight's topic um, is human enhancement, where enhancement refers to the possibility of improving the state of an organism beyond its normal healthy state, right? So enhancement in that sense is different, prima facie at least different from therapy, where um, you aim to somehow compensate for a deficit or something that has gone wrong, right? Though, as we would perhaps see in the discussion, it might not always be so easy to actually draw that line. Now, we actually all engage already in enhancement in some form or another, right? So quite a few of us, including myself, wear glasses. Most of us will probably drink coffee in the morning. Um, we uh, perhaps do exercise. Um, we meditate. You know, all kinds of things to, to improve somehow um, our status in, in our organism. But um, it seems that due to the advances of technology and neuroscience and other sciences, new forms of enhancement are being developed are already in existence today, but also might in the future be developed. And these new forms of enhancement might somehow um, alter the organism perhaps in new and interesting and particularly challenging ways and raising particularly interesting um, ethical questions, right? So think of um, brain-computer in interfaces, think of genetic engineering, think of new drugs to enhance memory, for example, or to remove the need for sleep. Um, or think of brain implants, of you know, all kinds of things like that, right? So these new technologies might have the potential to alter the human cognition in fundamental ways and hence raise fundamental ethical questions. And the aim of today's um, dialogue is to explore some of these questions. So um, what we want to do is we want to consider the various possibilities, <coughs> potential scenarios for human enhancement and the potential risks and benefits associated with these. Um, and tonight here to do that with us are two um, very distinguished speakers who are very qualified to help us engage with these issues. Um, so we have Nick Bostrom, who is professor in the Faculty of Philosophy at Oxford University and founding director of the Future of Humanity Institute and of the program on the impacts of future technology within the Oxford Martin School. Um, he actually has a PhD in philosophy of science from the LSE as well, so he's returning today to us um, to talk to us about these things. And his wide-ranging work is focused on a lot of big issues very much in line with the kind of uh, things that the forum is interested in, um, including, of course, human enhancement. And he has written quite a bit of, um, he has done quite a lot of work on those issues as well as on, on other issues. And then there's Anne Kerr, who is professor of sociology at the University of Leeds. Her work focuses on science and technology studies and the sociology of health and illness, and she has a particular focus on gender genetics and reproduction. Um, the way we want to do this is I'll first ask the two speakers to briefly uh, present their, a basic outline of their views on the topic. Um, then I'll basically hand over to them to engage in a little debate between the two of them. I might ask, ask some questions myself, and then we'll open up the debate to the floor and take questions from you. Um, and before we start, one final 
thing that I was asked to say, speaking of uh, future technologies and present technologies and so on. For those of you who want to tweet along the event, there's uh, a Twitter hashtag that you should use if you do that, and the hashtag is um, LSE Enhance. You can see that there as well. Okay, so feel free to um, tweet along during or after the event. Um, and with that, I'll just hand over to you. I think Nick will start uh, with giving us a few thoughts on the issue. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for uh, inviting me here. Uh, this is uh, a big topic, so rather than trying to cover all the basis of this in my introductory remarks, I'll just pick up one or two small things and then we can fill things in as we go along. Um, I think there are two different kinds of perspective one could adopt when trying to evaluate the desirability of uh, different forms of human enhancement. On the one hand, we have what we might call a, a narrow view or uh, the conventional view, where you evaluate it by the same standards as you would evaluate any other proposals for things we might do, policy proposals and so forth. Uh, on the other hand, you have a kind of a wider view, uh, the view that you would adopt if you actually were an altruist who wanted to do what is best for the world, taking long-term consequences into account. Uh, that's a view that's rarely adopted when you're actually doing policy, uh, but uh, it's interesting, at least from my perspective as a, uh, somebody with an interest in moral philosophy. So uh, we might kind of jump a little bit back and forth between these two different evaluative perspectives, but it's useful to keep them apart. Um, I think that the main problem with uh, human enhancement today is that it doesn't work, uh, that is that the methods and techniques available currently are very weak. Um, they have marginal efficacy in some particular situations. They, they do enhance performance, uh, particularly in sport, where anabolic steroids help build muscle, or erythropoietin can help cyclists go a little faster. But for the most part, um, they are of, I think, marginal effectiveness, and their long-term consequences are often unknown. So. There's at least one good reason for being a little bit cautious about embracing a biomedical enhancement in its current form, which is just kind of the boring but important fact that they are medically dubious. Um, now, it's interesting, uh, however, to consider um, some um, time into the future when, when presumably there will be increasingly effective ways of intervening in human nature available. Um, and there are many different avenues of research that are, are currently pointing in that direction. So for some purposes, it can be useful to abstract from the current uh, technological limitations and then consider uh, the political and ethical questions that arise uh, when we get more effective tools. Um, and my view on that is that you have to evaluate these on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, uh, that there are big differences between different kinds of enhancement. And just to, to pick out one distinction that is relevant here and, and then I'll sort of maybe we, we can get into the details more later, is that the distinction between um, a positional and, and absolute goods. So in economics, a positional good is some, um, some good that you have, but only by virtue of somebody else lacking the same good. So um, for example, um, uh, in, 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 in the enhancement context, maybe height is something that gives you various advantages if you are a male in our society, being taller, uh, is associated with uh, higher status, like uh, maybe greater mating success and so forth. But if 
all the males were three inches taller, then nobody would be any better off than before because one person's gain is canceled out by a lot of other people's corresponding losses. Like they, they are kind of shorter by comparison. So this is a big dividing line that you can uh, draw through the line of possible enhancements. Um, and insofar as an enhancement would provide only a positional advantage, I think there is no moral case for promoting it. Uh, so this would apply to, say, uh, increases in height. It would apply uh, to cosmetic enhancements. Uh, you know, if, if, um, if, if everybody had perfectly white and straight teeth, then somebody had slightly uh, normal teeth by current standards would suddenly seem defective. So again, it just shifts the bar. Um, and uh, we can contrast this with enhancements that give some um, intrinsic benefits to the user, independently of whether other people also have the same enhancement. For instance, an enhancement of your health. If you are healthy, if you are immune to getting an infectious disease or you can't get cancer, say that's good for you, even if everybody else also have the same enhancement. So in those cases, I think that the uh, moral case for enhancement is much stronger. Um, now most, or at least many enhancements would be a mixture of uh, these two kinds of goods that would involve a positional element, but also an intrinsic element, say intelligence enhancement would have a positional component in as much as if you are smarter, you can compete more effectively for the best grades and the best jobs. And, and that, that's a positional aspect. Uh, but it also has this intrinsic aspect. The, the only, the, there are other reasons for, for valuing cognitive capacity other than being able to be, get good grades. You want to be able to understand great literature. You want to be able to contribute to, to projects that understand the political system and so forth. Um, so. I guess to simplify, my view would be that um, if the advantages are purely positional, then there is no moral reason for doing it. But if there is at least some component that is also intrinsic, uh, then there is at least a prima facie case for thinking that it might be desirable to pursue. Okay, thank you. Um, do you just want to go straight ahead and share? Okay, thank you. Um, I suppose I'm coming at this from a slightly different um, direction because I'm a sociologist, so I'm interested in um, how ideas and technologies of human enhancement have developed and um, what sort of actors have been involved in developing and promoting those ideas um, what happens when they're taken up in practice can we learn from other similar kinds of technologies uh, looking back at what's happened with them to understand what would happen with the kinds of technologies that, that Nick is, is, is talking about and can we think about the social implications of those developments beyond the, the individual and their, their immediate um, circumstances? So I think I have several observations that I'd want to, to open the discussion with um, from that kind of perspective. The first is, and I think probably Nick would agree with this, that, that the idea that you can make a nice clean division between enhancement and, and, and intervention to, to treat disease is, is problematic because many of these things are actually um, in, integrated and, and mixed up in, in practice. And in, in actual fact, one of the ideas about enhancement or the promotion of the idea of thinking about human enhancement came around about the time when gene therapy was being developed and, and a distinction was drawn between gene therapy for the treatment of disease and, and human enhancement to sort of make people better than normal. So that was a kind of rhetorical device that was used at the time amongst the communities of, of, of scientists and policymakers who were promoting a certain kind of 
um, um, genetic therapy. So I think that means that we've always got to be aware of what the normal is when we're talking about enhancement and to be aware that that shifts and Nick has already um, suggested that himself that, that, that that's a problematic thing that you know you raise the bar if everybody has white um, teeth then, then, then there's another issue about the presentation of one's mouth that, that becomes a way of, of seeking advantage in, in society and that's how things progress and indeed if you look at technologies that are probably similar we can think about as, as similar to the kind of um, human enhancement technologies that we're talking about here um, if you look at how they've developed and been taken up, what tends to happen is that they are initially presented um, as, as a means of, of improving the lot of a, a distinct small group of people, but that then that expands gradually and gradually and gradually, so more and more people um, are encouraged to take up these technologies. So Ritalin is a good example of that, initially targeted at people with um, ADHD, um, and the, the, the definition of ADHD expands, so more and more people get captured in this definition. And then Ritalin starts to be used more widely for enhancement of concentration. So I think that's a problematic feature of these technologies that we need to bear in mind. Um, and more generally, I think that we need to recognise that we're living in a, a consumer uh, capitalist economy and the way in which these technologies will develop and be distributed are probably along consumer lines. And that makes me question what sort of advantage they bring to society as a whole because just the very fact that people who have the financial means to go and purchase these technologies and will therefore go and do it will mean that there are going to be an excluded group of people who are not able to consume and it's not going to make their life better. In fact, it's probably going to make their life more miserable. And if we go down a line of saying, well, actually we should engineer this on a wider scale through public policy and a kind of social engineering, that makes me very concerned as well because that smacks of a kind of positive eugenics and we have a very um, bad history of that in, in this country as well as in other um, Western countries and beyond. Um, so efforts to try and engineer the population to be better, for example, one could imagine um, arguing that um, children in disadvantaged communities, perhaps um, they should be all given um, enhancers at school to um, improve their concentration, or girls from families where there are social problems should all be um, given contraceptives at the age of, of 13, um, implants could be, could be distributed, and that there would be an argument that this might benefit them and indeed their communities, but the knock-on effects of that, the unintended consequences, the side effects, I think are hugely problematic. So for all of those reasons, I think I would be very wary about promoting human enhancement technologies, and, and ultimately I think that it's somewhat of a distraction, really, when you think about the massive challenges that societies face, the huge levels of inequality, and the redistribution of wealth from the poor to the wealthy, I think these are the things that we ought to be concerning ourselves with as social scientists and philosophers rather than human enhancement technologies. Okay, interesting. So basically, if people maybe even shifting their focus to say, um, do you want to... Um, I mean, I could pick up on something. So, I mean, there, I think a lot of the uh, reasons you put forward would apply equally if instead of considering 
a biomedical enhancement pill we considered laptops say which also is a technology that can give somebody advantages which is expensive at first and therefore first used by uh, elite groups or wealthy groups and in a sense increases their advantage over others um, and it's not clear how any of the things you said would uh, not apply to that case uh, so it seems that the arguments risk proving too much. They risk, if they actually worked, would also suggest that we should cut back on all kinds of just ordinary technologies. And uh, Well, I think there's distinctions between these kinds of things. I mean, first of all, um, a biomedical response is something that's done to the body, in the body, of the body, um, as opposed to you know, purchasing a laptop. So I think you know, there's concerns there about what happens to bodies as well as what happens to... To, to societies beyond that, but nobody is um, advocating um, a kind of program of, of, of uh, digital enhancement in, in the same way that human enhancements are being advocated. And I think that, that that's why you know, the response is to, is to question and problematize, and I think that that's quite reasonable. Um, yeah, well, I, I think there, there are some people who are promoting different kinds of, uh, um, you know, availability of digital technologies and, and promoting the rollout of, of bandwidth. Many countries have had big, big programs for that. Um, and uh, I mean, even, even within uh, the healthcare system, there, there are sort of techniques that are developed that are usually expensive at first. And uh, most people on earth cannot afford to have mm -hmm. like a kidney transplant or anything like that or a cancer drug. Um, and, and yet, so in a sense, when there's a new cancer drug being developed, it increases global inequality and as much as the better off or even better off because now they can also buy this treatment for diseases. Um, but it would be very hard egalitarian line to think that that's a reason to try to forego these, uh, these expensive uh, luxury treatments. Well, it probably is a reason to think about the way in which the pharmaceutical industry operates and indeed the way in which the, uh, the digital industries operate and to think about what, as a society, we want to, to promote on, in terms of their activities. Um, and, of course, one can't intervene in markets very easily um, and it takes a lot of um, activity amongst broad ranges of people, but it does and to understand that those markets are pernicious and ought to be, there ought to be alternative solutions. And to think about, uh, I mean, I suppose I should ask you really, um, the, how much of the enhancements that you, you um, advocate do you see as a kind of, um, there need to be social engineering or public policy interventions, or do you feel the need to leave it to the market? Well, I think that there is a range of, of options there, which depending on people's political views, they will choose one or the other. But to some extent, that's uh, an orthogonal, an independent question, like uh, to the question of whether or not we should promote enhancement. So uh, you, you might favor more or less redistribution or more or less public services versus the private sector, and there's like an old debate, and, and people have a big tug of war sort of pulling in both directions there. So I don't think we're going to resolve that debate here. But wherever you, you sit on that uh, line, I think you could find some way to um, see a role for, for these kind of biomedical enhancements um, within your favorite social framework. So if, if you were, um, say, thinking that it was important to try to reduce social inequalities, then you could imagine subsidizing some of these things, for example. Uh, th there's also a premise here, which is 
questionable and perhaps false, which is that biomedical enhancements are essentially expensive. Uh, if we compare different ways of achieving the same end, say improved understanding of the world or improved cognitive capacity and able, ability to reason, uh, one way we try to achieve that now is through education. And it's important enough that we think we should subsidize education so all kids can have access to that. Uh, and it's hugely expensive. Like good quality education costs a lot. And I contrast that with, say, a cognitive enhancement pill, like the closest we have today, maybe uh, modafinil, which uh, is, a, is a pill initially developed to treat narcolepsy, but it seems to also improve uh, a working memory. Um, at least in the short run. So, so that, that costs some, but it costs less than, say, a cafe latte a day for a daily dose of modafinil. Um, so if you wanted to improve the cognitive functioning of people, then either you could invest in more in better schools that everybody could have access to, and that would cost a lot more than if you developed something like modafinil, but you know, maybe with slightly fewer side effects. Uh, so, so the very premise there that, that these are more exclusive by their nature than, than sort of social interventions, I think, is... is Incorrect. So can, can we just talk through an example of, of how this would work on, on the cognitive enhancement case? So, for example, the, the, the case of, of children in, in a deprived area, whether it would be socially useful to, and beneficial to them as individuals to, to dish out cognitive enhancers rather than fruit um, at, at, at the lunch break. Would you... Know, hopefully both, maybe. Well, it, it, um, presumably there are finite resources, so choices would have to be made about... But, but yeah, okay, so, so for example, with the fruit then, would you think that would be okay? Um, well, I think that if there, to the extent that there are enhancers that actually work... Now, my, my, favorite, my, my sort of general tendency would be to be wary of attempts to impose a uniform standard on everybody uh, with regard to enhancement technologies. I think. Uh, within certain limits, it's probably better to leave these choices to individuals to precisely, I mean, partly because of the sorry track record of, of kind of state-engineered uh, attempts to improve the population. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think that's consistent with, say, having some kind of public information campaign or, or subsidizing uh, some of these interventions. And, I mean, that could be done through the healthcare system, so just as kids can get Ritalin, uh, for free on the NHS today if they really have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or if they can convince the doctor that it would improve them in some way. Um, so if there were other enhancers, I think that that could be made available on the same model. Um, I, mean, I think right now, actually, paradoxically, it's not the price that causes this barrier or, or that, that makes it hard for some people to have access. Uh, because the price is low for a lot of these things, it's actually the fact that they are not um, distributed in the normal medical model. The, the, the sort of the medical um, um, model is really based on the concept of disease, and, and uh, so so that means that if you want to have access to, say, uh, modafinil or Ritalin today, what what you have to do is either you have to be savvy enough to be able to go online and to some online pharmacy, which you then need to distinguish from all the fake pharmacies, and you have to have a certain sort of amount of social capital and skill to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, or you have to be able to persuade some doctor. Uh, and again, that's something that some people with greater social capital will be better able to do. Um, so I think what sort of precludes uh, disadvantaged group from having access today is, is actually this, uh, 
there's this kind of discrimination between enhancement uses from therapeutic mm -hmm. uses. Um, and, and that's something one could change if one, if one were more embracing of, of uh, enhancement as, as a legitimate purpose of medicine. So, so it, let me see if I can just extend that slightly. Um, probably what that would mean then would be that if these drugs were more widely available to people and it was on the basis of individual choice that, the, that it wouldn't necessarily be children most in need of them who would have them. It would be the children of the middle classes who would, who would have them. Um, and then does that not possibly mean that within the classroom that, that the, the distinction between the kids who are naughty and don't concentrate and those who are well behaved and do concentrate and do well would increase? Um, and that, that actually, overall, the class wouldn't benefit? I don't think it would necessarily do that. The, the, the people who would benefit most from, say, if we take the particular case of uh, enhance, uh, enhancements of concentration, uh, the, the children who would benefit most from that are the ones who are worst at concentrating. Mm. Naturally, like the people just vary. Some, some can focus for hours and others can't. And the ones who would stand to gain most would be the ones currently at the bottom of that distribution. And uh, I think many enhancers would tend to have this property that it, because it, it's often easier, like just from a technological point of view, to, uh, to fix something that is broken than to improve something that is already functioning optimally. So I think in many cases you would find that it's easier to develop an enhancer that works uh, for lifting up the uh, the least advantage on a particular kind of trait parameter than it is to raise the ones that are already near the top. But I suppose what I'm trying to get at it really is that the children who are um, in that position who, who don't concentrate well are probably um, children from homes where they haven't got the, the material and financial resources to, to purchase these um, drug treatments. Well, I mean, in, in this scenario that we were discussing, they would be on, available for free in, in the NHS. Uh, okay. And even if they were not, they would probably be cheaper than other things they currently could try to do to help their children, like hiring a private tutor or whatever the sort of existing alternatives would be. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that hiring private tutors is interesting because that's obviously a financial um, um, resource that certain people have to, to improve their kids' grades at school. And, and I... I think probably my sense is, is, is just to close off this um, example is that probably what would happen would be that um, you know what what it would mean to get a good grade would have would increase so that the, the bar would raise so just as we see with with sports and the use of um, enhancers in sports it makes it more difficult for for children who are from from homes without material resource to access and to become good sports sportsmen and women. And, just, and, and this, these kind of technologies would probably have the same kind of effect. So overall, I don't see that that is, is socially beneficial or, or, or worth the effort. It would probably make quite a lot of money for pharmaceutical companies. Um, but I don't think that that's a good enough reason to, to promote it. But, I mean, that, that's the same like if a good university like the LSE or Oxford improves, then all the other universities are worse by comparison. But it's hardly a reason for us to cease trying to be better in our classrooms, is it? I mean, that, but it, it doesn't necessarily the sum of human happiness. Well, I mean, this is again the distinction between a positional and an absolute advantage. So I think education, like intelligence, mixes both. A large function of, of education is this accreditation where you get a degree and that, that 
there can only be so many degrees of the highest order because part of the function of the degree is to differentiate ability. Mm -hmm. But insofar as education were only about that, then I think that would then maybe remove any reason for public subsidy for education. But we think education also serves some other purposes. Uh, for example, actually uh, to acquire knowledge. And uh, to the extent that it's about learning new skills, then uh, just because somebody learns more skills better doesn't mean somebody else cannot also benefit from learning skills. So it's not a zero-sum game in that respect. I want to um, just pick up on, on that point in particular. Um, because it seems to me that some people feel perhaps a little bit uneasy about these, uh, let's say, unconventional ways of enhancing, um, like you know, taking a memory-enhancing mm -hmm. drug or taking a concentration-enhancing drug, rather than engaging in the more conventional ways of increasing your concentration just by, you know, by practicing a lot and working, and working harder and studying and so on, because they feel that um, there's an intrinsic value also to just the process of engaging in studying, for instance, mm. or in, in yeah. trying to give so, folks you so might. Some, some students might have a different view yeah, on that. Of course, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not saying that I necessarily, that's necessarily my position, but I just want to put it out there because it seems to me that, that some people do have that position that, that by taking, taking a drug to achieve the same effect, you're actually removing part of what's intrinsically good about education or study or mm. you know, sp engaging in sport, namely this kind of pushing yourself to the limit by the means that you have available. I, mean, I think you could still push yourself with the pill. Presumably, it's still going to make a difference how hard you work. Uh, and that's what we see in sport. Like, it doesn't mean that you don't have to train. It just means that uh, kind of the standard of performance increases. So why is it then that people feel so uneasy about doping in sport, for instance? Or well, I mean, you know, some people would certainly feel uneasy about students taking, taking certain drugs before sitting in exam. Well, so I think in sport it's because it's cheating and because even if it were made legal in sport, uh, so it wouldn't be cheating anymore, it would still only provide a positional benefit. And there's going to be one gold medalist no matter what. Mm -hmm. And we don't really care about the absolute times or weights that the athletes manage. It's really about who wins. And so to the extent that it's about who wins, we're not changing that by having them it's take drugs. It's not just about who wins though, is it? I mean, it's also about who, I don't know. Well, I, mean, I, I, think, I think that's my hypothesis for why we would be uh, uneasy about it in sport. Primarily because it's unfair. Mm -hmm. If not everybody takes it, then it kind of distorts the, the level playing field idea. And so you could counter that by saying, well, what if we made it legal to take them? Then it would no longer be cheating. I mean, I think the reason there is that it has medical negative effects. And if all it does is to make everybody run a little faster, it doesn't change the sort of the amount of good we get from the sport uh, because it's this positional good. Um, so, so that's why I think maybe in the realm of sport, it makes sense to be uh, wary of, of the idea of enhancement. See, I would say in the case of sport that it's already quite difficult for, for kids to participate in sport. Um, as we know, in, in, you know the, the, the Olympics um, led to quite a lot of um, reflection on that about you know, the closing, closing down of, of playing fields and so forth and the difficulties of, for, for athletes of getting sponsorship and, and so forth. So it's already quite difficult. And if you have to then purchase a load of pills and, 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 and take more... Um, interventions to achieve that, then it, it makes it more difficult. And I think that's my concern as well about the enhancements more generally. It's, it's actually about more and more things that we need to buy and purchase and consume to, to make us better. 
um, and it just gets a bit wearisome, really. Um, I'm, not, I'm not kind of suggesting that I'm, I'm appealing to some sort of authentic, unadulterated version of human nature or, or the biological body. That's not the case at all. It's just that this all seems to me to be about yet more things that we need to do to, to, um, to participate in this, in this um, you know, world of consumption. So you think that if you made certain cognitive enhancements or physical enhancements available, then they, that would sort of create almost an obligation to then also take Well, them. yeah, and I think that the, 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 the use of other kinds of technologies, and um, we haven't talked at all about, um, about reproduction and reproductive technologies, but that's quite clear. Um, if you look at how reproductive technologies have been introduced, that they start off being presented as a choice, but that choice comes with, with obligations, and people end up taking up these technologies um, with all of the, of, of, of the problems and benefits that that, that, that that brings. So I think that, that choices are never just a matter of pure individual choice. They always bring, they come with obligations, in this, in, in, dependent on the social arrangements with which, in which people operate. Yeah, I mean, again, again, I think the same things could be said about a lot, a lot of other cons consumer goods more generally. So, um, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it then brings into maybe uh, play this, this, this wider perspective that I mentioned. So I mean, I'm saying normally when we're making policy, we don't say we shouldn't prom build any more computers and laptops because it just feeds into our modern consumerist culture and everybody feels they're on a treadmill and we should go back to a simpler lifestyle. That's not the sort of the regular perspective, but if one does want to broaden it out for the purpose of a philosophical discussion, then, then, then I think a, a variety of very different considerations uh, enter the playing field here. And, uh, and those considerations, in my view, don't have so much to do with how it would affect society at the time when these are introduced, but more about how they would change the, the overall uh, future prospects for humanity in the long run. Uh, so, so my view, uh, if some of you have come across my writings, is that, that humanity in it, 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 the current human condition is very much uh, an abnormality from almost any conceivable uh, perspective. So obviously in space we are very abnormal, like Earth is this unique crumb in, in a huge vacuum, um, most of which is uninhabitable, and in time, um, most of the time the Earth has existed, there were no humans, even in historical time frames, which is really zooming in, the current epoch is extremely abnormal. We used to live in a Malthusian condition for almost all of human history, and now we take for granted that people can do other things than just trying to uh, scrape by from day to day, and we take for granted that there will be technological change within a lifetime. Uh, like, all of these things are, are extremely unusual uh, from a broader perspective. So, so, so my uh, thinking about this, this broader question of the desirability would be shaped by the consideration of what interventions we could do now would increase the chances that when the human condition changes, as I think it will, it will be for the better. What, what, can, how, what can we do to improve our chances of a long and prosperous future for humanity? Like, how can we ensure that the transition to machine intelligence or other advanced technologies will, will uh, be uh, safe and beneficial for humanity? And, and then uh, it's no longer a question of so much the medical side effects here or there, or whether it increases or decreases inequality or happiness in the short term, but it's sort of whether it positions us to be better placed to develop these radical new technologies safely that we might see perhaps later in this century. I always worry when people talk about policy on, on that sort of grand scale, because that isn't actually how policy works, as, as um, 
people who have studied social policy can tell is it's much more incremental, it's much more um, politicised and it's much more a matter of certain kinds of elites um, who, who, who engage in these discussions and these worries about the future of humanity um, and then, then, then conjure up solutions to, to address them. So, I mean, who, the, the, the ideas that you have around existential risk are very interesting, but who, who is worrying about this? What kind of audiences do you tend to speak to about this? Who are the policymakers and the, the people who have these concerns? Well, this is um, obviously one of the main challenges, I mean, because I completely agree that this is very much not the normal perspective in policymaking. I mean, it's like a very unusual perspective to actually try to think about what would do the most good in the world. Um, surprisingly, um, but um, there are a few people who seem uh, to be interested in this. I mean, like this is the reason why I started doing work on that mm -hmm. in the first place, and some of my colleagues and some other folk around the world are, are beginning to um, beginning to try to be more um, attempting to be more systematic and careful about how you think of, for example, your philanthropic efforts or your giving to charity. One of my colleagues started this. Uh, uh, charity, giving what we can, which is about rational philanthropy. Uh, another, this uh, nonprofit called 80,000 Hours, which is 80,000 hours being roughly the number of hours in a career. And uh, what they're trying to do is to get uh, young people and students to stop and think about which career they want. And to the extent that they want to do good in the world, they should recognize that there might be orders of magnitude differences in the amount of good you can do, depending on which career path you take. And it's not necessarily um, that the obvious first guess is the correct one. You might think I should become a doctor and go to Africa and treat kids there, but then if you pause, you might reflect that if instead you become a banker and earn a lot of money, you might be able to fund many doctors to go to Africa and help children. And there might be other ways, but it, it's actually a non-trivial problem to figure out what you should do if you really cared about the world and helping people. Uh, so there is a kind of, I mean, I don't know how far this will go, but it's, it's there is a sort of little ferment in the last few years, a small number of people still but expanding or beginning to try to apply rationality, as it were, to, uh, to these kinds of really big questions. So it would be interesting, I think, to see how, how far one can take that. But if you take this, this sort of um, broader perspective, I mean, with respect to human enhancement, is there any, I mean, does that change very much um, the way we should think about human enhancement? Yeah, well, it certainly changes, I think, which kind of considerations become relevant and important. Um, now, I think it's very difficult, this, as it were, global perspective, well, altruistic perspective. It's, it's very hard, actually, to find out even which direction is up and down, as it were, which direction would make things better versus worse. It, it, so I'm, I'm not at all confident that in that perspective I have, have the correct answers. But I think one might make a distinction, for instance, between uh, changes that would improve human cognition from changes that would change human emotions or change human values. I would tend to be more cautious about the latter. Like that is things that have a risk of corrupting uh, human values. Um, we should maybe delay until we are wiser. Um, because once your values have been corrupted, although you could go back, you, you still have the technology to change your emotions, you might not want to anymore. Like Once you started becoming a different person who values different things, you would no longer see a reason to try to uh, rewind those changes. Um, 
Whereas cognitive enhancement, if, if they work well, should hopefully put you in a position to be better able to judge what is desirable as a next step. Uh, and so in terms of sequencing here, it might make sense to first focus on things that could make us wiser and smarter um, and delay certain other changes that might ultimately do a lot to improve human well-being, but uh, that don't necessarily have the same propensity of increasing our ability to make wise next steps. Uh, so so that, that might be one kind of tentative observation that becomes relevant from this wider perspective. So, so I think I want to say two things about that in terms of the, the, the benefit to humanity as a whole. Why is it that, that there's no kind of reflection on treating things like um, child mortality in the developing world or interventions to, to treat malaria and those kind of vast sort of problems that we face uh, uh, as a global population. Um, that to me would seem to be a kind of obvious thing that we ought to be trying to be doing, um, which is of course bedeviled by huge amounts of, of political um, and economic um, barriers to, to, to addressing. But that would seem to be to me more important than than thinking about making people more altruistic or uh, you know, the other kinds of enhancements that we're talking about. They seem to be very much aimed at a, 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 a already quite um, wealthy and um, benefited population rather than the population as, as a whole. Yeah, I mean, so there is actually a lot of uh, focus on uh, developing world charity, like um, giving what we can that I mentioned earlier. That's That has been so far their exclusive focus. Um, in terms of finding the most cost-effective charities to actually help uh, people, mainly in Africa. Um, deworming programs and uh, some other things seem to be very good there. Um, but um, uh, the reason is that, to, the reason for why I still think that uh, there should be more focus on, on say, existential risk is A, that there is almost nothing on that at the moment. There are just a few people who are thinking about this mm -hmm. compared to a massive, uh, development economics field and like large-scale philanthropies that are working to help the poor. But also that the focus of, insofar as enhancement comes into this, it's mm. not because it would make people happier now. Uh, it's because if we adopt this wider perspective, it might put us in a better position to manage this critical transition later in the century. So it might be that there are certain very challenging technical problems that will be confronted that might require uh, greater than, than uh, what is currently human intolerance to solve, for example. What do you have in mind there? Uh, about the control, so, so I'm currently writing on a book about uh, super intelligence, uh, the, the future of machine intelligence, and it's a slightly, it's a tangent here, but we'll, we'll sort of wind it back to our discussion. Mm -hmm. but anyway, so, so my hypothesis there is that at some point we'll, we'll might create uh, greater than human machine intelligence, and a super intelligence um, could be extremely powerful under certain circumstances, it might be in a position to shape the future. So that then raises the question that if and when we do get the capability to create such a thing, how could we ensure uh, that it will be safe and beneficial? It's the control problem. If you create something extremely powerful and super intelligent, how could you control what it will do so it will have some kind of beneficial effect? Now, that control problem seems to be very difficult. Um, and there are a number of approaches, like we know some approaches that look promising at first actually don't work, and we don't yet know an approach that certainly would work. So that would be an example of the kind of question where it might be that it's just at the kind of roughly at the edge of, of current human ability to, to figure out a solution to this. So maybe it's slightly beyond. 
Um, so one of the reasons for thinking that perhaps cognitive enhancement would be desirable from an existential risk mitigation point of view is that you could help uh, with a problem like that. So I suppose the other thing I wanted to say, really, which relates to this, is that, that these ideas about um, being more intelligent is, is better for humanity and being more rational and being more altruistic, I think, are, you know, we should pause around those, um, who gets to define those terms, and we should pause around the idea that, that an elite, intelligent core of, of individuals can... Uh, can be a benefit to humanity because I think we've seen ideas in the past about those kind of elites that, uh, that have been deeply problematic and have led to all sorts of people being persecuted in, in various forms. So I think that's, I'm, I'm wary of that, that kind of argument for those very sound um, historical, historical reasons. Um, and I think as well, you know, really clever people often think that being more clever is what everybody wants and that, and that that would be a good thing but I'm not sure that it is I think if you, if you look around us and we think about what um, what would benefit um, humanity in, in its broadest sense but also you know, people living now today I think that it's, it's more basic things that, um, that are important and I think that, that that's why I again I, I, I have very many qualms about the kind of uh, not that I would want to step in and say, you know, ban this and stop this and don't do that and don't write your book or anything like that. It's just that I think we, we, ought, we, ought, to, we ought to be very um, cautious and careful around these things for, for those reasons. Yeah, it's just hard to make it, to carve out a little subset of cleverness that's unimportant from the wider set of things that we seem to assume is important in our daily work, like when you're like working in a higher education system or you're striving for the truth every day through your publications, through your teaching, to try to encourage people to think for themselves, to be more reflective about things. Like, that's really what I mean by cognitive enhancement. It's not this kind of, uh, you know, you're better at, at puns or, or sort of clever whipping mathematic logic yeah, chopping arguments. It's, it's the kind of a broader range of capabilities that, that make us better able to, to, to understand the world. Um, so, I mean, it's possible that that will make things worse, but... <laughs> One then needs to recognize that if one really believes that, it has radical consequences for what we should be doing in higher education. We should not lament ineffective and wasteful university bureaucracies. We should cherish them because they reduce the rate at which universities make people smart. It, so it's very easy well, to we sort of. Get rid of people. Uh, so, so it's. It, it's a very radical conclusion, is what I'm suggesting. That if one really thinks that cognitive enhancement is bad, um, then there are whole sorts of thing, corollaries of that that, that that would really make one go very much against the grain of current society. That that's necessary for everyone, but it might not also be desirable for everyone. Well, I mean, I suppose what I'm... Just to speak personally for a moment, I think I've always... Um, you know, many of us here probably, and certainly academics, um, have always wanted to be... Uh, you know, wanted to do well and wanted to be the cleverest and to do very well and to teach the students to make to, to, to have success and all of those things. But I think now, I, I, as I look at my own family and my own kids, I always assumed that they would go to university. Now I'm not so sure, just because of the way in which the, the economy um, it, it ha has taken a turn for the worse. And I, and I kind of think, well, maybe that's okay. You know, why do they have to go to university? Why do they have to be clever like that? Is that going to make them happier? Is that going to 
make the world happier. Maybe if they do a job like, that, that is socially useful and productive, um, hopefully not bankers, um, <laughs> um, then, then you know that that would be increasing, increasing. The, the, they would be they would make a valuable contribution to society, and that would be a good thing. Well, the, the banker, if they actually did give their money to the right causes, could yeah, make that's, a productive contribution. I think that's a sticking point, isn't it? Uh, so that depends uh, on your values. They tend to keep the yeah. money, don't they? Um, but I mean, on that, I, mean, I kind of agree. I, I mean, it's a sideline, but I mean, I think there is this problematic assumption right now that, among in many social circles, that unless you go to the university, you somehow failed. I think that's just unfortunate, because that I think plays into the signaling function of higher education. That because it's such a common thing to do, if you don't have a degree, it's, many employers would think that there must be some disadvantage, some reason, uh, and and that, that that's unfortunate. I think. I think um, we should perhaps at this point open up the discussion to questions from the audience, which I'm sure there are, there are many. Um, so let's just start right there. Uh, yeah, with the red sweater. Hello, um, I, um, I think there's a microphone coming around, so if you could just wait until you have the microphone in your hand. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Gert van Vught. Um, uh, Nick, I have a question for you about the... Uh, the idea that um, we should uh, try to enhance our intelligence to make better decisions about how we will apply ourselves uh, for the better and to, um, you know, uh, strive for the good life in an effective way. And I agree with you that we're uh, uh, very much, um, well, ignorant about what this, this good life will be, especially when it comes to the longer term. However, um, to equate cognitive ability with wisdom as you, you, the word you used, is I think a mistake. Um, wisdom, uh, to me, it seems still a bit, uh, comes with age and time uh, uh, rather than with Or, or uh, not, speed. as the case might be. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. But um, if, if we use our intelligence to advance our intelligence, then you get into a sort of intelligence square um, acceleration paradigm that leads, as, as some of the uh, authors you uh, uh, refer to, I think, a singularity or an explosion where we can predict what the outcome will be. So to invest our resources in more intelligence is kind of a leap of faith that that will be for the better and not for the worse. Where actually, the only thing that I'm pretty sure of is that more time would make the possibility of it going, uh, developing for the worse smaller. So in fact, we should invest all our resources in um, you know, uh, uh, upping the bureaucracy in universities or even effectively um, decreasing the level of intelligence and cognitive abilities in the people that are most eager to advance them. What do you think? So, well, um, so what I think of that is that, well, A, I agree that intelligence does not equal wisdom. I mean, there are a number of factors that come into wisdom, aside from whatever cleverness I mean, it's like. You can be biased or have an interest or be narrow-minded, like all of these things would detract. Um, also, there is a distinction between individual intelligence and wisdom from collective intelligence and wisdom. So if what determines what humanity does is this more collective understanding, then there are many other things one could do, aside from enhancing individuals, that might improve our collective wisdom and understanding. Um, now, as for the question of whether enhancing, say, let's, let's say wisdom or intelligence, individually and or socially, whether that would decrease existential risk, uh, it's a difficult uh, question. I think to a first order approximation, maybe there would be two effects of this. One, it would tend to make everything go faster, like technological development 
across a wide range of uh, areas and scientific development would just happen faster with more intelligent people. Um, so that might just bring us to the precipice sooner. But then again, even if we move slower, we'd still get there eventually. So then it brings into play the second effect of increased intelligence, which is that not only might it increase the speed at which sort of technological civilization is moving forward, it might also increase uh, the range that we can see. Uh, that is, we might be able better to anticipate certain kinds of consequences and pitfalls. Um, so you could imagine a kind of sufficiently large uh, number of monkeys typing on typewriters or, or dumb humans making a little trial and error, and eventually they develop advanced technologies, but they never do it by planning ahead or thinking about the long-term consequences. They just try a lot of different things and eventually finding something to work, and then like an evolutionary process, it moves forward. So they have sort of zero foresight. Whereas the same amount of progress done by more intelligent people might rely less on trial and error and, and more on kind of actually having a vision of where you want to get to. And so to the extent that increasing uh, individual or cognitive ability would tend to increase our sort of horizon, or widen our horizon, as well as move us faster towards it, it, it seems to me a good guess it would be that it would reduce uh, existential risk on balance. But it's for some such fairly subtle reason that that would work. So it's not, it's not obvious that, that that is, but I mean, that's my best guess currently. Do you want to add something to that? It seems to me that uh, this idea of human enhancement almost necessitates a sort of sense of what hum being human means. Because, I mean, it, you know, if you take like a group of 20 people confronted with a half-completed sculpture uh, of, 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 of a human torso, uh, we don't know yet whether there's going to be a male sculpture or a female sculpture, where, you know, whether it's going to be fat or slim or tall or not, or, you know, whether it's going to have you know, the, the, the features of a working person or of a lesser person. We don't know what the perfect human being would be, so I think that would be great. So if we try to enhance that half-finished sculpture, you know, depending on who completes it or who enhances it, we would go into different directions. I'm sure the Conservatives and Labour in this country would both think that what they do is clearly for the best of humanity, but we would have great arguments whether, you know, whether we agree with one or the other side. Um, so, m m my question is, is, what is you? I mean, I have a sense that you've got this sort of sense of an Aryan, of a kind of a superhuman, uh, a kind of a sort of a, a superior human uh, in mind. It would be quite interesting if you could elaborate on your kind of superhuman. Um, I, I was thinking, I mean, I mean, like, I think Hitler had similar ideas, but maybe you can uh, uh, improve on it. Um, second question, enhancement can also go the other way. It's not necessarily improvement. If you think of LSD, for example, in the 1960s, which was, as far as I understand, prototyped in the Vietnam War and was in part meant to make soldiers more effective at killing, but it, of course, also is claimed to be a great enhancer of consciousness and all the rest. So, you know, again, when it comes to enhancement, you know, whether something is just a drug, whether something makes us better killing machines or more competitive animals, or whether it makes us more, you know, better human beings, again, there's a huge political debate and divide around that. So maybe, again, you could elaborate on how you would decide what qualifies as a good thing and what qualifies as a bad thing. So... I think to some extent one doesn't need to if one does focus instead on general purpose capacities. So there are some general human functionings that are good for leading a very wide variety of different kinds of lives. So 
most obviously there are sort of physical health um, that that is useful whether you want to be an artist or a banker or a, a philosopher or whatever you, you, you don't want you want to have lungs that can actually absorb oxygen and so forth and I think similarly like um, neurological development is, is useful for a wide range of different kind of human uh, ideals um, so for the same reason that we remove lead from the tap water because it damages brain development if there were some similar thing we could add to the tap water that would promote brain development I would favor that for the same reason not because I have a very particular view of what sort of the ideal human would look like but just because that seems to be something that would be broadly beneficial across a very wide range of different ideas about what, what, what one wants to achieve in life. Do you want to comment on that second aspect? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so unfortunately a lot of technologies are being driven by military interests, uh, both sort of other kinds of technologies like drones and surveillance stuff and all of that. And to some extent human enhancement as well. So I mean, what we have today uh, is actually mainly uh, a side effect of, of medical research focused on, on diseases. So all these things we mentioned, Ritalin and Monafinil, they have all been developed initially to treat diseases. Then it turns out maybe they could help um, healthy individuals as well. But insofar as there is any attempt to develop enhancements because of their enhancement effects rather than as a side effect, that's very limited. And it's mainly some efforts by DARPA in, in the US to kind of create the, the war fighter of the 21st century that can eat grass and doesn't need to sleep for days. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 I think, sad that that's, that that's the motive that is, is, is pushing some of these efforts. Um. I think in relation to the, the point about the, the, the kind of what kind of humans are we trying to intervene with, uh, I, I think it is important to recognize that, that people who, have, um, who are disabled or have certain kinds of um, impairments don't necessarily want to be improved along these sorts of lines. So even, for example, um, people who have cystic fibrosis um, would, would say, uh, obviously, they want to have antibiotics and access to drugs and, and, and physical therapy to improve the capacity of their lungs. But I think that there were many people in the cystic fibrosis community who were very wary of and not so interested in, in genetic technologies like, like genetic therapy because it was basic kinds of access to, to drugs and treatments that they wanted. Um, and then, of course, there are people who are quite content to live um, in, in, in bodies that are slightly falling apart and not, not doing all that we want them to do because that's part of the human condition. Okay, there um, were two questions we can take them since they're sitting right next to each other. Right together. Um, yeah, you two there. I have a question for Professor Kerr about a certain kinds of human enhancements that I think you would actually approve, and I just want to check. If I can very, very, very briefly suggest three. Uh, human enhancement that would make bankers more compassionate and more likely to give their, well -earned, give their earned monies away for philanthropic reasons. Secondly, if there was an enhancement that would make policymakers less parochial, less, say, fussy, less tribal, less politically minded. And thirdly, if there was an enhancement that would make really clever people, but less, say, blinkered by their own prejudices and by their own cognitive biases. If there were dr drugs or some uh, genetic enhancements that would uh, make these enhan enhancements possible, would you approve? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, not really, no. Um, I think that, that it's just um, it's a bit farcical to, to try and address those things via, via drugs. And I don't really have a very strong belief in the idea that you could come up with a drug that would make people more compassionate. So I prefer old-fashioned methods like progressive taxation. And, uh, <laughs> the old-fashioned methods don't seem to be working very well, and well, we seem no, to be in a bit of a crisis. That doesn't mean that, that I mean, of course, they, they don't work very well, and, and they're... But, th but that doesn't mean to say that, that they, they could work and that they haven't worked in the past because I think that they have and I think that the kind of social arrangements that we have at the moment are by no means inevitable and I think that, that we, we, there is a potential for political will um, to, to address them and I would much rather invest my time and energy in promoting, in promoting that. Can you talk about human confidence is absolute rather than, I'm an economist and so I, I use things like opportunity costs. Take for example university education which, which we obviously think is a human enhancement. We give us three, five, ten years of educational ability in academia but for example another person may go and work for three years and therefore he's more enhanced when applying for jobs because he has his three years of, of, of experience. Surely it's about opportunity costs not actually about um, absolutes, every drug has a side effect. If I take whatever Lance Armstrong took when cycling, I've shortened my career. I'm, I might be faster for two years, but I've only got a three-year career rather than a ten-year career. There's always, there's no absolutes with these things. Uh, yeah, now opportunity costs have to be uh, taken into account. Uh, I, mean, I think education has a huge opportunity cost because it takes so much time. Um, if it were a matter of popping a vitamin pill every morning, uh, it doesn't have a very large opportunity cost because you can do that and take advantage of whatever other opportunities you had. Um, so on a case-by-case -case basis, the opportunity cost might be large or small. Uh, but it's, it's obviously, they should not be uh, forgotten in the calculation. Okay, um, I wonder if you go back. Well, I'm just done. Probably as a foundation of society, if you remember, uh, kids used to have milk in the school. Kids used to have free milk in the school at the time when nutrition was not very good in the UK. That was a stop. And recently, Professor Winston did uh, some research giving kids fish oil in a school mm -hmm. to improve, uh, uh, without drugs, to improve concentration and. Uh, probably to supply the lack of nutrition that nowadays we, we have. So what I propose is if we change the education, if we put in the curriculum good nutrition will create healthy bodies, will create healthy minds. If we put good economics in the curriculum and good ethics, we probably enhance society because then we are having a healthy body, a healthy mind, and a healthy society. So probably we have to start from education, and this is not private or, uh, or, or, or the state education, because it will be in the curriculum, and all kids will have in the uh, obligations to know how to treat their body, how uh, consequently have a healthy mind, and how to treat society. So it's probably quite simple, and you don't need modafinil or things like that. No? Uh, yeah, and I think that uh, the low-hanging fruits today are often uh, simple things like that. They're just like exercise or nutrition. Um, so I, 
I agree with that. That I mean, I think that that particular study on the fish oil needs to be replicated and just mm. to see that it actually bears out. But if it does have this effect, uh, then I think it would make a lot of sense to either uh, dish out more fish in, in, in uh, cafeterias in school or <coughs> hand out fish, fish oil pills. I, I don't really care which of those. I mean, if, if they actually do the job uh, of helping kids learn in school and being healthier, I would be all for it. Question for Professor Bostrom. Um, I know you're uh, very familiar with you know, transhumanism and Ray Kurzweil and all of his thinking. Do you believe that in our lifetime, sort of if you extrapolate Moore's law and the rate at which you know, computers get more intelligent, that we will actually see you know, breakthrough, really radical changes in you know, AI and life extension and things like that? And if we do get there, and whether it's in our lifetime or not, do you think there's going to be serious governmental and policy pushback that will stifle some of that innovation. Um, thanks. Um, well, the first question, I've, I mean, uh, the answer is we, we don't know uh, uh, how long some of these technologies will take to arrive. It's very difficult to, to predict technology timelines when one is going beyond what is currently sort of in development. I mean, so like talk, it, it might happen 30 years from now, or it might take 80 years, or it might happen next century. And, what we need to do, instead of thinking of a point prediction, we need to have a probability distribution that we smear out over a wide range of possible arrival dates, uh, including some that are within uh, the lifetime of a lot of people here, so that, that cannot be excluded. Um, whether there will be a lot of pushback? Um, well, I think that the amount of public debate and discussion on these things will increase as, as they sort of become more realistic. Um, what the effect of that would be is, is hard to say. Uh, there, is, um, there is at least currently a kind of a competitive world order where you could imagine that some nations will try to uh, delay certain developments, but then once they see that some other nation is, is plowing forward, then they will be tempted to say we must not fall behind. The economic competitiveness of our nation requires that we do this, that, and the other. Um, so my... My default guess, I guess, is that, that things will kind of continue like that, as they are now, mainly, mainly driven by kind of diverse and scattered commercial reasons and, and the hobbies of different scientists, rather than any grand vision of where we want to get to. Um, but it's possible that at, as these kind of bigger prospects come into view, that they will be harder and harder to ignore, and that at some point, say, different states might embark on program to develop like critical breakthrough technologies in AI or, or some sort of eugenics program. I, I could imagine... I don't know whether this will happen, but it's not unconceivable that, that China, say 20 years from now, once there really are genetic selection technologies, would try to roll that out. Or some other country like that. that, that um, but that, yeah, that's also hard to predict. It's hard to predict the timescales, and it's hard to predict uh, kind of the political responses. Okay. Um, I think we have some questions up in the front. Yeah, in the front row. <laughs> Why don't you start in there's a microphone behind you. Thanks. So in the beginning of the debate, it was assumed or implicitly assumed that positive eugenics are bad or wrong. And just to be very clear, I'm not asking about the attendant sort of problems with eugenics, for example, that regimes that engage in this tend to also engage in, say, genocide. Mm. I'm only talking about the eugenics itself. Now, what exactly about positive eugenics uh, does society find wrong, bad, or off-putting? 
why is this something that we can just assume, oh, we don't want to go down that road? So, so just to, to, to give an example of positive eugenics to, to answer that, um, the, the ideas um, that were promoted in this country around um, getting the middle classes to have more children, um, implication being that the working classes and the feckless um, ought to have less. Um, so a kind of positive programme of tax breaks to encourage um, um, wealthy, um, intelligent people to have more children. What would be wrong with that? Um, well, um, it's, 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 <laughs> it's a waste of, of resource and effort. It's not actually tackling need and benefiting children who are um, living in poverty. And it would seem to me to be more important to tackle, to work with the kids who are already here rather than to, to try and encourage other children to be born into already wealthy families. It's also, um, I just have a kind of visceral sort of reaction to it because it's elitist and it's patronising. Um, and I, I can't imagine that it would necessarily um, happen nowadays, but you never know. Um, with, with the current it, government. it is. I mean, there are different... So, for example, in Cyprus, there is this big government program that tried to eliminate thalassemia, which is this blood disease, by <coughs> genetic counselling. So before getting married, you have to have yourself checked whether you have this gene, and then you can decide whether you want to get married or not after that, but you have the information. So that has, I think, more than halved the incidence of this disease there. And a lot of other countries have... It's common for pregnant mothers, especially older mothers, to screen for Down syndrome, mm. and then some people then select to have an abortion as a result of that, which is also seeming to have the effect of reducing the rate at which kids are born with that. Well, and so it is kind of actually. happening uh, when there's like negative selection, I guess, but yeah. I could easily see that once it actually becomes possible to test for more conditions, including positive traits, that a lot of parents will take that into account as well, especially if they are doing some in vitro fertilization procedure where they actually have to select which embryo to implant and then they might use all the information available and, and make some kind of overall judgment as to which embryo to select based not just on whether they lack a certain disease gene but also whether they uh, possess some disposition or, or tendency to, to develop whatever health or athletic ability mm -hmm. or, or whatever it might be. So, so, so dealing with those kinds of examples, for example, first of all, um, screening for, for Down syndrome, I think the problem with that is um, that it, is, it becomes an obligation rather than, than a choice for, for many people and you end up on a kind of conveyor belt when you're offered testing um, and there's, there's huge problems with that um, in, in terms of the obligations it creates for, for, for mothers to abort. I'm not sure that it actually is reducing the incidence of Down syndrome that much either more generally because of course that links to, to women as they age having, having children and the incidence of, of Down syndrome increases in that respect so I'm not sure that, that, that that's necessarily the case. In relation to pre-symptomatic testing and screening and other kinds of interventions um, in assisted conception um, I mean I think the problem with that is a better example was probably to look at um, egg donation practices um, where there's selection for um, positive traits, so, so college girls with, with, uh, with eggs where they, they talk about their race and their intelligence ability and, and those are positive reasons to, to, for, for, for clients to purchase those eggs. 
Um, I think that that's problematic. Well, what, what, what about ordinary reproduction? I mean, people tend to favor mating with people who are smart and healthy and uh, beautiful and well, sort of, I mean, I mean these, these, like, we are programmed you know, as eugenic beings. Like, you don't just randomly select somebody from the population. Kids, I think. Um, <laughs> this is why we have mate preferences. I, I, so, so I think I probably don't believe in these kinds of evolutionary <laughs> arguments for how people reproduce. I think people reproduce because of lots of different kind of social and cultural reasons which are not biologically driven. I have a question about the um, kind of like the legislations actually on, on this. Um, um, I, I, I want to kind of like give my view on this. For, I mean, um, the thing is, as we are human, I think uh, we will always uh, enhance because we are creative beings and it's in our nature to enhance ourselves. Like, for example, the clothing we wear, wear uh, you know, it kind of like defines us, you know, it uh, defines our identities, gender, but also it helps us to explore the world, you know. Uh, like, for example, you know, it helps us to dive, it helps us to go to the, um, you know, space. Um, they are all kind of like, you know, um, kind of like cl uh, clothing, um, and, and enhancements, um, but um, the thing is, how can we protect um, also the market uh, exploit, uh, exploiting these enhancements? Um, I work in the uh, creative industry, and um, um, we kind of like uh, work for emerging markets. And uh, uh, in the emerging markets, uh, in the Asian market, for example, um, there is a kind of like a market for uh, having fair, fair, fairer skin, and it is kind of like a sociological uh, problem there. And, and the thing is, because uh, there are creams and also nutritional supplements are available, um, it's been actually, uh, you know, exploited by, by the market, even uh, by the, you know, Western companies uh, who are kind of like trying to uh, exploit these markets and what kind of uh, legislations could be put in place. You know, companies are actually kind of like uh, saying that, you know, they are there to help the society, but then, you know, they're actually, you know, doing uh, the other way. Uh, like the, um, you know, products that we use uh, in this market, they are actually uh, available uh, or their brands in, you know, uh, for uh, making the skin fairer. Um. Do you want to have a stab at that? Well, I think that technologies like that, and there's there's probably an argument that because of the risks that they pose to people's health, that they that they the legislation not to be used to kind of control the markets. Of course, that's easier said than done because the reality is that that you can purchase these things on the internet yeah, <laughs> um, in an un unregulated form. Uh, you know, uh, cor uh, corpus like in the uh, L'Oreal, that they are doing that. You know, and yeah, uh, yeah. there are uh, legislations. Uh, Missing that out basically, you know, it's just yeah. like being century backwards. Uh, you know, it's like we haven't improved at all, and uh, they are using their social void. Uh, it was quite a big issue, uh, the cost issue there, and you know, the void space. I mean, the thing is, there's also another thing uh, in, in this market, we actually kind of like you know, uh, use uh, bronzing products you know, mm -hmm. to kind of like the trigger, and it, it, it is actually a freedom of choice, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to change our appearance. Mm -hmm. But then uh, it is actually exploited there because there's an understanding that if you're a player, then uh, you're a higher being, basically. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it sort of, sort of matches, I think, some of the concerns you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the discussion, right? And, um, mm. 
I mean, I think it's always very difficult to talk about banning these kinds of technologies that we, we think are problematic because, you know, once they're available and they've been developed, it's, you can't kind of, you know, there's no point in bolting the stable door once the horse is, horse is bolted in that, in that sense. Um, but, but I think that there are ways in which you can um, encourage markets to invest in other kinds of things. So it's a sort of positive incentive to, to, to develop technologies which aren't so problematic. Okay, um, yeah, there's one question. Yep, there's lots of questions I'm trying to, to get you all, but probably won't be able to. Um, there in the front row, and then we can make ready for being. Thank you. Um, thank you. This is a follow up on an earlier question for Professor Bostrom. Um, I completely agree that as humans we should try to be more intelligent and that we should try to improve our cognitive ability. Um, however, I'm not sure that educating is the same as medicating or encouraging people to have laptops is the same as giving cognitive ability pills. And I sort of too had the, um, was it a visceral reaction that Professor Kerr talked about? I do have that, but I'm wondering is there an ethical or philosophical argument behind that, that suggests that we shouldn't tamper with our own bodies and that we shouldn't try, try to improve ourselves like this? Well, yeah, there are. I mean, I'm not terribly persuaded by these attempts to provide general philosophical arguments against enhancement. I think there have been some efforts, particularly by the um, bioconservatives uh, in the United States during, so during President Bush, he set up this big uh, bioethics council, President's Council on Bioethics, and put in uh, Leon Cass to chair that, and they wrote various reports on human enhancement and, and generally tried to show that all human enhancements were bad. But I thought their argumentation was very weak. Uh, it kind of appealed. It's hard to summarize it because it's. I mean, but it's some sort of idea of the natural state, and it's unnatural, and it subverts our true human nature, and the, all of these things. So life extension bad, cognitive enhancement bad. Like you can go through the list. Um, I think the more interesting arguments that I have seen have been more specific, focusing on individual enhancements in particular contexts and particular effects. Uh, r rather than some general prohibition uh, against tempering with nature. Um, th there have been others who have tried to do something. Uh, Habermas, Fukuyama, uh, uh, Sandel, who's a Harvard uh, political uh, philosopher, has uh, argued that we, that we need to prize this openness to the unbidden, which it has, that, that this general attitude of, of just welcoming whatever happens is very valuable in itself. And once we go in and try to achieve a particular outcome, say through enhancement, that then means that we lose, lose this, this value of being open to. So when you have a kid, you, you don't want to necessarily think of it as a sort of engineering project. You want to have this sense of the parents welcoming it for its own sake and accepting it. And then he tries to sort of build on that to, to make a more general case against enhancement. I think also not entirely persuasive. So it seemed to me that you were appealing to maybe something similar when you made the distinction between cognitive enhancement and affecting our emotions, for instance. Yeah. I mean, you seem to want to say that maybe we should distinguish between different types of, of enhancement and not all of them are to be welcomed to the same extent. Oh, no, but I certainly think that there different enhancements need to be welcomed to different extents and, and some, some may be turned away at the door. But um, the reason for thinking maybe we should be cautious with the emotional ones was this, this broader perspective. If one thinks of what will reduce existential risk and if you simplify it, then there are two kinds of enhancements, ones that change what we want and ones that change our ability to judge what we should want or what will get us what we want. Maybe it makes sense to do the latter kind first, 
to then put us in a better position to figure out what other enhancements we should do as well. Uh, so that's. But purely, so that's purely from a sort of minimizing risk point of view, rather than saying that there's something maybe intrinsically valuable to having certain emotions. Oh, well, of, of course, there is something I think intrinsically valuable to having different emotions. I mean, even and painful emotions, you know, like say pop, pop. you break up with someone, would you want to take yeah. a pill to just make the, the pain go away? Yeah. And some people no, might no. say no. So, so that, that's that's in fact another reason for thinking one should be probably cautious with these kind of personality, in, precisely because you can sort of. Maybe, maybe draw a line, and there are some enhancements that are sort of unambiguously, or some changes that are unambiguously good. So if you cure somebody, uh, like a child from cancer, you think that's unambiguously good. Right? Um, then I think cognitive enhancements uh, are usually at the middle of the line. So if, if ordinary medical enhancements kind of are un unambiguous usually, I mean, they're not even true there. There are many cases of medical interventions that are ambiguous. But overall, we have some fairly good idea of what, what is healthy and what is sick. Uh, good enough that we can see why NHS is a good idea and stuff like that. Cognitive enhancements, it gets more complicated. Say, what is a good memory? It's, well, we have some idea. Like, we know that some people have a better memory than others, but it's not necessarily the case that just being able to remember more facts is better. Uh, there are other functions of memory, like being able to generalize from experience, detecting the general patterns in experience, rather than just remembering a, a sequence of uh, data points. So there we have some idea of what a good memory is, but it's also complex and there could be different kinds of good memory or memories that are good in different ways. And still, I think with cognitive enhancement, we have a reasonable good idea of what's up and down. Uh, but once we get to personality, I think uh, it's a lot more complex, even to say what is a good personality. I mean, I think there are some cases where you can say that someone is suicidally depressed, it would be better if they weren't. So we have some idea, but it's a hugely deep, thick, philosophical, uh, normative uh, task to, to, to form an opinion about what we want there, uh, which also makes one cautious about just rushing in with the, the first kind of uh, pill we get and then making sure that everybody's smiling all the time. And maybe we lose some of these more subtle values that are really crucial, but that were less obvious. Uh, so, so maybe delaying some of those interventions until we have grown up more and thought about this for you know, maybe a few hundred years more or whatever it might, might be a good idea. Do you want to have the last word? I think I actually agree. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So we have consensus at the, at the end of the debate. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I do apologize to all of those who couldn't ask their questions. Um, please join me in thanking our two speakers, and, and thank you to those of you um, who asked really interesting questions as well tonight.